Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On her 18th birthday, Harry Potter star Emma Watson watched in disbelief is out of control. Tabloid paparazzi got down on the pavement to take pictures up her dress. When it came to women in the early 2000s, nothing was off limits, says writer Sarah Dighton. Her new book reflects on the way nine women, including Britney Spears, Janet Jackson and Lindsay Lohan, were subjected to systematic sexual harassment, misogyny and discrimination. And how that treatment shaped the way women, other women would see themselves for years to come. Her new book is called Toxic, Women, Fame and the Noughties. And Sarah Dighton joins me now. Hi. Hello, thanks for having me. What made the 2020s a good era in which to examine what happened in the 2000s? Mm, interesting question. I think... Partly it's just a question of the progression of time. So a lot of things uh, had sort of happened in the run-up to this book that cast a new light on some of the stuff that had seemed quite familiar from the noughties. So, for example, there was Britney challenging her conservatorship. There was um, the Harvey Weinstein case and the revelations around that and other cases of very powerful men in the entertainment industry who were suddenly confronted with very serious allegations about sexual misconduct in their role. Um, So partly it was that there was new information and a new willingness of women who had been through really difficult experiences in the public eye to talk about them and to give their own version of their experiences. Um, But also, I felt like it was a good moment to take stock because the noughties were a really intense period for loads of reasons. I mean, we were going effectively through, um, you know, a technological revolution in terms of the Internet arriving in people's lives, learning how to navigate that, learning how to deal with the incredibly um, sort of apocalyptic consequences that had in terms of privacy and how we Mm. all live our lives. Um, And I think it's taken until this point to really get a handle on how much changed in that period and what the consequences of that were. There's a great quote in there. Um, It's actually, it's from film critic Molly Haskell. uh, Described the female screen stars of the 70s as two-way mirrors linking the immediate past with the immediate future. In a way, the same thing can be said about this era. Can you unpack that quote a bit for us? Yeah, I love that quote. Um, I think it's such a good distillation of what we ask celebrities to be for (laughs) us. Um, So I think celebrities have a really... um, important role actually in terms of how we think about ourselves and it's really easy to dismiss celebrity culture as frivolous and silly and trivial and obviously 
it's not, you know, we're not talking about great affairs of state, but we are talking about the kind of coverage that is really a society talking about talking to itself about what that society should be. So in the stories of the women I look at, really, the sort of trials and tribulations of their coverage were often ways for you know, the culture at large to think about what were acceptable ways for women to behave and what kind of standards did we want to hold women to. So, for example, Jennifer Aniston and the way that she was covered as, quote unquote, sad Jen, as this sort of portrayed as this very (laughs) tragic woman who was desperately pining for, you know, her ex-husband and a baby that she didn't have, which was not really a fair reflection of the life she was living at the time at all. But that coverage was a way for the gossip press and the media to basically exercise all of its feelings about women as a whole living very different lives in this period to the ones they'd lived a couple of generations ago. And a way of, you know, saying, how do we actually feel about women deciding not to have babies until later and maybe prioritising their careers and maybe not needing a man to be happy? Or, for example, with Paris Hilton and the sex tape the very cruel coverage of her and very, very viciously unsympathetic coverage of someone who we would now recognise correctly as being a victim of revenge porn was really a way of saying, how do we feel about women who have sex? What kind of sympathy is due to a woman who is exposed in this way? And at the time, there was not very much sympathy at all. Central to the book, well, one, I was going to say highlight, One prominent feature of the book is this idea of upskirting. And in fact, you start the book Mm. with a story of an anonymous uh, girl, 16-year-old girl in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, and and why was she a sort of a way in for you? Um, Found that case really fascinating. So this young woman is upskirted in this supermarket. It's seen by a security guard on camera. The security guard calls the police. The police are like, oh, you know, this is an open and shut case of voyeurism. Goes to court, perpetrator is convicted. And then on appeal, he's exonerated. And the grounds on which he's exonerated is that this young woman, this girl, was in a place where she did not have, quote, unquote, a reasonable expectation of privacy. So because she was in a public place, the most private parts of her body were deemed to be accessible to him. And I found that really interesting because it shows how the legal system, in this case, the American legal system, but this is something that came, you know, it comes up worldwide. There are cases I discussed in the book from around the world Mm. that show a similar sort of collision between privacy and law and privacy and action. And the law and society were simply not equipped to deal with new technologies like digital cameras, which were, you know, lightweight, fast, flexible, made it possible to commit acts of upskirting in a way that had not been possible before. And then to make those images public um, in a way that had not been possible before by putting them onto the internet. And you can really see, I think, in that case, really clearly how starkly the law was set up to fail women particularly and how that becomes obviously particularly pertinent to famous women because you have the whole phenomenon of paparazzi who are effectively taking upskirt pictures but doing it under the guise of a professional job and therefore not seen as sex um as sort of committing an act of sexual invasion um 
but it affects all women and this corrosion of privacy this um sort of nibbling away at boundaries is something that all women have to learn to navigate all people have to learn to navigate to some extent during this period but it affects women particularly keenly yeah it's in a way it's a book about these famous women but it's um there's so much in the treatment of them that not only reflects the treatment of other women, but actually shaped it as well, I think. Um, each of the women you feature sort of had this media-created narrative, messy Lindsay Lohan and sad Jennifer Aniston and tragic Amy Winehouse. And, and, and you sort of track that into the messages that girls growing up in that era actually absorbed about what it means to be a woman. Yeah, 100%. And in some ways, the purposes of this kind of coverage... Um, we sometimes just seem to really be to teach women a lesson to say, you know, if you behave in a, you know, if you are irresponsible or, you know, quote unquote, slutty enough to allow yourself to be filmed by a boyfriend and it goes online, then bad luck you, you're the bad party in that. And it's worth, if you look back at the coverage around Paris, really all the opprobrium was on her. There was no opprobrium on the man who was putting the tape out in public um which again seems really strange now but we were dealing with a completely different set of norms and standards around privacy and sexuality i'm talking to sarah dytum and her new book is called toxic women fame and the noughties it's a bit of a cliche perfect storm but that's what happened in this era right there was a um there was the internet yeah. culture, internet gossip culture. There was tiny cameras. Um, it all sort of happened at once, not to mention a healthy dose of misogyny. Right. I think Perfect Storm is a good description of it. So you have old misogyny. So loads of the stuff that was um, being um, imposed on these women in terms of double standards, in terms of... In, in terms of misogyny, it was very, you know, it's ancient, right? You can track a lot of this stuff about, um, you know, slut shaming or about the sort of fetishization of virginity, for example, in Britney's case. You can track that right back through history. Mm. It really goes deep. But you bring that together with this new technology that's emerging in the noughties and also a kind of a, a sense of cultural anarchy in some ways <laughs> it's a really strange period and i think partly that's because a lot of people in the media especially in the new york media are emerging into um it's it's quite a um politically febrile moment and it's really easy to forget that as well but loads of people spoke directly um, in interviews from the time about how 9-11 had changed the way they wanted to treat celebrities, uh. which seems absolutely, it seems ridiculous now, right? It was something that I felt really um, taken aback to read. But for example, Piers Morgan, who um, was a tabloid editor in the UK around that time, gave interviews where he said, well, 9-11 happened and I decided that we couldn't let celebrities have it their own way anymore. <laughs> and you're sort of like, that's <laughs> that's your response to 9-11? <laughs> but, but it really was. And I think it created this feeling that everything was in chaos. Everything was up for grabs. So 
why should you not participate in the most sort of nihilistic and chaotic version of gossip culture that was available? <laughs> At that time, too, magazines were collapsing. I mean, the, the publishing industry was collapsing, and tabloid magazines, as you point out, the only ones that are sort of doing okay. Mm, yeah, um, a lot of market forces had a really um, strange sort of ratchet effect on the kind of coverage I'm talking about. So yeah, so magazines experience a massive drop off in circulation during this period because of competition from the internet and the drop in, in ad revenue as well because of competition from the internet. But tabloid celebrity magazines are a kind of a holdout from that. So a lot of money goes into them. But simultaneously, because that's obviously a very attractive market, there's a lot of competition for that market online. So you have a real Wild West atmosphere of the magazines basically trying to outgun the blogs and the blogs trying to outgun each other perpetually in terms of who can get the, you know, the dirtiest, nastiest stories as quickly as possible. Um and there was a very hazy attitude to, um, you know, whether libel and slander actually applied on the internet at all, which, again, is something really um, felt very strange to me to kind of go back and rediscover that. But it was only in, um, I think, 2012 that the UK had its first libel case brought on the basis of a tweet. And I remember when that came about <laughs> that there was quite a lot of coverage of people saying, well, how can you commit a libel? How can you commit libel on Twitter? And yeah. that's like, of course, of course you can. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Um, but there was this feeling that the internet was this kind of slightly other place where the normal rules didn't apply. Um, but that then influenced the mainstream media as well. I hope it isn't a problematic question to ask you, Sarah. Where was feminism when all this was happening in the early 2000s? <laughs> No, not a problematic question. Very good question. <laughs> very good question. Um, because it's a, it is quite a strange period in terms of where, sort of where the women's movement is at in that period. So there are um, great and important pieces of feminist work. There's Ariel Levy's um, Female Chauvinist Pigs, which is published quite early in the period I'm writing about. Um, there are feminist campaigners and activists who worked consistently through this period and who were at no point deluded about what was actually happening to mm. women in this period. But feminism itself, on the whole, was uh, quite unfashionable, actually. And there was it was a, you know, a quote unquote post-feminist era. There was a sort of a widespread feeling that the most important battles had been won. And the best thing that women could do would to be kind of, you know, suck it up and enjoy the ride. And that opened up this space for um, these kind of quote unquote choice feminism phenomena like the Girls Gone Wild um, films, this right. sort of pornographic series that had um, a, like a, a period of really high but surprisingly brief cultural currency, which basically relied on going to college towns and getting drunk girls to show their breasts and then selling DVDs with this on. And obviously the girls didn't actually make any money for it. I think they were given like, um, you know, Mardi Gras beads was the yeah. standard payment in most cases. Um, but the attitude of the many of the women in the process was that they felt 
empowered by it and they felt like they were doing something that was kind of claiming their sexuality and enjoying themselves the issue was that if in the cold you know if you sobered up in the cold light of day and you decided actually you weren't happy with it or if you found out down the line that for example your college classmates had seen your breasts and this was not what you actually wanted the the company gave zero consideration whatsoever to you know withdrawing or protecting your image and the truth is that a lot of these women were you know drunk at the time they did the videos so weren't able to consent and some of them it turned out subsequently in court cases were in fact underage and so should never have been approached or invited in this way but that was the sort of that was the standard basically it was kind of like well you know (laughs) this is what the world is so join in and have fun or you know be approved and go and sit in a corner on your own if we look at the most famous woman in the world now taylor swift well that's probably arguable but maybe let's call her the most um Mm. most important female celebrity right now maybe that'll do yeah Um, if she wants to fight back (laughs) against speculation and critics she can do it on instagram or um, via her own channels, uh, do you think it would have made a difference if the women that you were writing about in the two thousands, who were really on the cusp of that direct connection to their fans, if you know if they had that ability? I think it totally made a difference. So you can see a really stark dividing line in my book between people like Britney, Paris, Lindsay, who become famous or who grow up before the internet is really a thing that they can take charge of their own image on. And someone like Kim Kardashian, who's the same age as those people, but who gets famous a bit later. So she really breaks through into public consciousness around 2007, 2008. And she actually has a MySpace page before she becomes quote unquote famous. She is experienced in shaping her image and communicating with people directly and in having that control over how she's perceived in a way that the people who come before her, you know, they don't have that opportunity at all to harness the power of the internet on their own behalf. So it makes a massive, massive difference. And now I think we're in an environment where really the power between, the sort of the balance of power between media and celebrities has decisively settled back with celebrities. So Taylor Swift is a really good example of this. Beyonce, a really good example of this. They do not have to agree to an interview to get coverage. Mm. And if they do agree to an interview, it's not going to be one that has any prospect of making them look bad. Um, And kind of, you know, fair enough. And, you know, you're never going to see Taylor Swift go on TV and give the kind of, you know, excruciating interviews that Britney was doing when she was, you know, basically apologizing to America for the fact that she'd ever had sex. I mean, what a humiliating, cruel thing to put someone through. So, you know, as a journalist, I'm a bit sad that people don't give like, you know, open interviews that often Mm -hmm. anymore. But from the perspective of celebrities, my goodness, like, of course you should protect yourself at all costs. I was in uh, commercial radio in the uh, mid, you know, that first decade of the 2000s and compulsory viewing each morning when we got in um, before doing our breakfast radio show was check in on the website of someone called Perez Hilton. Uh, what part does he Perez play in, in your book and in the story? <laughs> he's, a, he's a fascinating man because he's basically um, a, 
a kind of a, a stone cold genius of gossip culture in a way. He sees the way the wind is blowing really early. So he works on um, mainstream celebrity magazines in the early noughties, but he goes home and he writes his own celebrity blog. And one of the really telling things is that his employer never, like didn't see any conflict between him running his own blog <laughs> and him working in their office yeah, wow. at the time. Because the no internet threat, seen no as threat little... whatsoever. <laughs> No, no, what could possibly go wrong? Because <laughs> the internet was seen as this little, you know, weird, nerdy niche yeah. that could never, can, you know, never compete with the, you know, the the big glossies. Um, so he's um, he's really an entrepreneur of the new media, but he's also a participant. He, you know, he creates this character for himself, Perez Hilton, um, who is kind of the worst bitchiest gossip in the world who says the meanest nastiest things and in his mind when he talks about it now um I've interviewed him actually um he says like he felt like he was playing a character and he didn't realize until later that you know that character had real world consequences and the things that he was doing quote unquote in character he was really doing um so he published a lot of like incredibly vicious stuff about celebrities. Um, and he also helped, he was also the person who um, he claims to have published the, the first pictures of Brangelina because they were being touted around by the paparazzi who took them. At the time, again, this is a sign of the naivety yeah. of that decade in many ways, um, photographs were not watermarked so paparazzi would simply send them around you know like full publishable versions yeah. with no watermark um to the magazines there was a bidding war between two magazines one of them obviously won the one that lost was like we're not having this and sent the pictures to oh, paris hilton to yeah. spike their rival story um so that is that story was basically Perez Hilton's arrival as a major gossip force and it really decisively changed the balance of power between print media and online and it showed that the old rules did not apply anymore that it was no longer in celebrities gift to um, you know manage or control coverage in this way because how do you negotiate with a bunch of pirates on the internet it's a very different atmosphere. Well, every one of these women has her own incredible story, which you go into in some depth. Um, people will be interested, I think, in particular to read about Janet Jackson and Nipplegate and what that looks like mm. 20 years later. But um, for now, Sarah, thank you for giving us a bit of a, uh, a look into this book. It's called Toxic Women, Fame and the Noughties. And I've been talking to writer Sarah Dighton. Great work on this, Sarah. I know you uh, view it as your life's work. and You've done a fantastic job on it. <laughs> thank you very much. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.